Welcome to Gov Innovator. I'm Andy Feldman. The topic today is insights from the new scientific team within the mayor's office in the District of Columbia called the Lab at DC. Our guest is the lab's founding director, David Yoakum. Here's a clip. If we're dealing with a policy area or looking for an opportunity to improve a program, let's try to sort of articulate what the opportunity is as, as clearly as we can and then draw on existing academic research, existing analyses of administrative data to come up with what we think are the best ideas. And the lab at DC provides some in-house capacity and partnerships with universities and beyond to do that type of design work. David Yoakum is with us today. In 2016, he became the founding director of the lab at DC, based in the office of the city administrator within the DC mayor's office. Its mission, to embed the scientific method into the heart of day-to-day governance of the city to provide decision makers with high quality evidence in order to improve results for the city. Prior to his work in DC, he was one of the founders of the social and behavioral sciences team at the White House, which applied insights from the behavioral sciences to improve federal agency operations. David, welcome. Hi, Andy. So David, for those who are new to the lab at DC's work, tell us more about the mission. So it really is about weaving the scientific method into day-to-day government. But to unpack that a bit, I think there are at least two, maybe two and a half core functions that fall out of that. And and it all kind of emerges from Mayor Bowser's vision for bringing together a process that generates the best ideas and then testing them as rigorously as we can. And so what those functions are, I mean, the first one has to do with that idea generation. If we're dealing with a policy area or looking for an opportunity to improve a program, Let's try to sort of articulate what the opportunity is as as clearly as we can and then draw on existing academic research, existing analyses of administrative data to come up with what we think are the best ideas. And the lab at DC provides some in-house capacity and partnerships with universities and beyond to do that type of design work. But the second sort of core step, and I think what is maybe most special about the lab and what distinguishes us from Uh, think tanks or a policy board that's just recommending things is that whenever we generate those ideas, really at the core of it is then looking for opportunities to evaluate how well those ideas work in the field. And so looking for opportunities to actually try something out in a way to where we can ask this question about, you know, what would have happened had we done something differently? And that's really the core for understanding whether the policies and programs we're working are, are working and how well they're working. Maybe the final thing I'd say here, and this was that kind of half on the the two and a half functions, is that to do that design and evaluation work, the lab at DC sort of recognizes that this is often a a capacity question. You need the right people in the right places dedicated to doing this design and evaluation work. And so how to actually build a community of practice, people that are not only staff of the lab per se, but also building partnerships with scientists at other agencies, building partnerships with scientists and researchers at universities, at think tanks, and other community partners is kind of a a key part of the mission. That is really helpful. David, give us a few more details about the logistics of the lab. So we're based in the executive office of the mayor, and more specifically in the office of the city administrator, who's Rashad Young, and we're part of the performance team, or the office of performance management. And at the moment, we've got about 15 scientists that are part of kind of the the hub of the team, if you will, that have backgrounds from from academia, from for-profit, from non-profit, from military, uh, typically coming from fields like psychology, economics, sociology, mathematics, uh, usually at the PhD level. 
that form kind of the, the hub of the scientific team. And then, like I said, you know, we're building this community of practice that involves scientists at other agencies, universities, and beyond. And so for any particular issue that we're grappling with or project that we're trying to design, we can kind of pull from this, this hub-and-spoke network to package together the right group of individuals to work on the project. And tell us about the opportunities where the lab can be useful. Am I right that you're focused on both program rollout, in other words, new programs, as well as improving existing programs? That is right. And I mean, if you sort of step back and think about it, government's already doing lots of things where, you know, we might or might not have good evidence on how well they're working. And so if, we, if we're lacking that evidence or if things seem to not be working as well as we'd hope, that could be a prompt to kind of go in and examine an existing program. For other issues, you know, we've identified a problem or an opportunity, but we're not really sure what to be doing in that space. And there you're starting from kind of a step zero of that design work of what should we try out uh, to begin with. I know that one of your ongoing studies focuses on the effect of police body cameras. Give us a sense of some of the projects like that that the lab is working on these days. Well, so one of them you mentioned, the body-worn camera study, and this is one that kind of fits into a category of it was a new program, but when we came involved, there were already decisions made to outfit officers with cameras. But what we did is take advantage of that new rollout to design a, a randomized experiment at relatively low cost. And what I mean by that is when the cameras were being distributed to officers, you know, rather than going from east to west across the city or asking officers to volunteer we actually did a randomized design. Kind of the simplest way you can think about it is, you know, flip a coin. If it's a head, officers would get cameras. If a tails, they didn't. And once we had those two groups of officers, with or without cameras, you'd expect them on average to be exactly the same unless the one thing different between them that we controlled, namely the cameras, causes a difference. So implementing that randomization as a part of the original rollout meant that even though the program itself was very expensive, the randomization wasn't a large marginal cost on top of that. It cost basically nothing. It basically just meant we had to have enough coordination with the implementing team on how to do it. The second key piece there is that we used existing administrative data, by which I mean just data that's already being collected for some sort of purpose as our window into outcomes. So things like uses of force, complaints, um, downstream things in the courtrooms, like whether a case is being prosecuted or not, there's already lots of data that's being collected on those things that we can use to compare those two groups of camera officers or not. And so when you sort of package that all together, it actually turns into be one of the most rigorous, largest studies, I think, in the world on body-worn cameras at relatively low cost. The reason we were able to do that is because of the way we've kind of weaved that scientific method into the operations of the police department itself. So, you know, examples of other places we're working in, there's a whole different category where we're doing interventions that are themselves sort of low-cost, small changes that can sometimes have uh, meaningful impacts, particularly in the aggregate. So, you know, unlike body-worn cameras, which is a multi-million dollar piece of equipment, you have things like looking at the communications and websites that agencies are designing and deploying that people interact with. So something like the forms we use to ask people to sign up to retire, or the forms that an individual needs to work on in order to secure benefits to TANF for temporary assistance for needy families. For lots of these things, we, we know a fair deal about how people process information and by extension, the sort of design choices that can trip people up. 
And by trip it up, it means not just can it be a headache to fill out this paperwork, but for some people, they might give up altogether, which is really the most serious problem because it means they no longer actually get the benefit or don't sign up for the tax benefit or whatever the sort of ultimate program goal is. And so we have a variety of projects where we're looking at these different form processes and looking for places where we can design them better based on things we know from the psychological sciences and from user-centered design uh, to make them work in a more streamlined way. And in the same category as that police body-worn camera study, I know that you all are also developing some other randomized control trials of larger social programs. Tell us about that. Sure. A few other in development, for example, looking into the issue of how rent subsidies might be useful for reducing homelessness. Another looking at how a nurse triage line, whenever you call 911, might be a mechanism of not only securing the same sort of health outcomes, but saving on funds that would otherwise be spent on needless ambulance uh, deliveries out into the street. There's another category of randomized experiments we're doing where the, the interventions are themselves lighter touch, and we often will do these sort of iteratively looking for improvements over months or even weeks or even days. So, for example, we're doing some work to make it easier to recertify and stay engaged in the TANF program, Temporary Assistance for Needy Family. We have another where we're working with the Department of Consumer and Regulatory Affairs trying to ease the process of businesses trying to sign up for permits. And maybe the last one I'll mention is that we have a, you know, a whole category of projects that aren't actually randomized controlled trials. They're either using other econometric type approaches or even straightforward data analytic projects. So, for example, we have a project where we're trying to use a variety of different pieces of administrative data to predict where rats are most likely to be present in the city. So we can sort of target resources to those locations rather than places where they're less likely to be. It's a good reminder of the variety of the topics where this type of analytical capacity can be useful, including the rats analysis. Two more questions for you, David. One is partnerships with outside researchers have been a key part of the lab strategy. Is that right? That is right. I mean, there's both on the front of trying to have a churn of ideas. So we deal with a wide variety of issues. And sometimes we happen to have people inside of government who are expert on those issues. But in lots of cases, uh, we either don't or we want to bring more people to the table. And so that's where those partnerships with universities come in. And not only universities. I mean, for most of these projects, you also want to have a lot of engagement with the individuals who are affected by the program. So that's bringing in people from the community, bringing in people from nonprofits or other advocacy groups that have been involved with that issue so that you have around the table people with a lot of different perspectives on what the problem is and what the most viable approaches to it are. That's useful. Tell us finally your early lessons about what it takes to run an analytical unit like this within a city government successfully? So it's a great question. In fact, I think that is one of the biggest questions that we're all confronted with right now. You know, it's not controversial to want to try to use evidence to inform decision-making. And for years, people have been talking about evidence-based policymaking. The, the really hard part is how do you how do you do that in practice? How do you actually generate policy or program interventions that are not only grounded in existing evidence and theory, but are, are workable in your district, in your locality, given your budget, given your staff. And this is actually why you see reflected in the design, the structure of the lab at DC, a very conscious decision to have some minimal viable capacity, if you will, 
of scientists inside government so that they can walk on both sides of the line of both knowing some of the science but also being very familiar with the, the program in the community so that you can kind of identify what are practically workable solutions. And so I think what this means for other cities that are thinking about doing this, you know, they're not going to all have the luxury of bringing together a team of 15 people. You know, the district is large. We happen to get a grant. Um, we were able to fund it, but that's, that's unusual. There's tons of places where that's just not going to be realistic. And so I think as concrete tips, I think one thing is that looking for some version of that minimal viable capacity, it could be something as simple as a single person that you hire or actually looking to a few individuals that you already have on staff and very explicitly making it a part of their job to be thinking about this type of work. So write it in their performance plans. Give them a fraction of their time that you're not only encouraging them to think about this stuff, but you expect them to so that you're empowering them to do it. The second thing is that once you have that minimal viable capacity in place, I do think there are models for drawing in non-governmental talent that we're trying here that are working well and I think will work in other districts. And so, for example, for some of the scientists that we have on staff, they're coming from universities. And so we've taken advantage of maybe they have a sabbatical or the summertime or some other period where they can actually dedicate time to lab efforts. Another model is we actually have something called a temporary assignment of personnel agreement where you can actually kind of have somebody at a university or other kind of entity go on loan, if you will, to the government, to where they become a government employee, but they don't give up their job at their university. And so you're getting talent from the outside, often pro bono or at sort of a bargain down low price in a way that allows you to expand the capacity that would be very difficult to do from just hiring uh, lots of people outright. For listeners who want to learn more about the lab at DC, including more about their projects, I'll post a link to their website, which is thelab.dc.gov. David, it is truly exciting to hear about the work that you all are doing at the lab, and thanks for giving us an overview. Thanks so much, Annie. It's been my pleasure.